Hello, welcome back to Everything with the Girls. If you're new here, welcome. We're Lydia and Grace. Say hi, Grace. Hi. Hello. (laughs) And every week we bring you true crime cases based on specific theme of each month. This month we're talking about couples who kill, because everyone thinks that's interesting. Well, we do at least. And as you've clicked on this particular episode, you already know that this is part two of the Moors Murderers. Murderers? Murderers. (laughs) I mean, they are Moors Murderers. I mean... Everyone knows what they are. If you haven't already, go back and listen to the first one, as it probably makes a lot more sense if you don't already know what the case is about. Um, But it is quite a tough listen, so just be warned. I think we we got through the tough bit mostly last week. Yeah, this is just easing back into it now. This is like a nice, relaxing sequel. Yeah. This is basically us just saying how fucked up they are. How interesting. Because they don't just let lie down. Yeah. So just a little recap. Last episode we spoke about um, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady's early lives and their early history as a couple as well. I won't lie, it's all a little bit fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) We also went into detail about the murders they committed. They had five victims, Pauline Reed. John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey, and Edward Evans. Um, confirmed victims. Yes, five confirmed victims. I reckon victims. there's lots more. I think so too. The last episode finished with David, who was Hinley's brother-in-law, calling the police after he had witnessed Brady killing Edward Evans with a hatchet in Hinley and Brady's home, with Hinley being the one who brought him there in the first place. David was picked up by the police and brought to the station to explain everything. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So. This basically picks up, like, the next day, I think it is. Yeah, so that's happened. Yeah. It's the next morning. David's gone and cried to the police about everything he saw. Rightly so. I would. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd be even able to explain it. I'd be such a mess. Yeah. Okay. So, Superintendent Bob Talbot of the Staley, Staley Bridge? Staley Bridge. Staley Bridge. I'm just saying it as a northerner. It's like Staley Bridge. Staley Bridge police division <laughs> i should just say it all in a northern accent and then it would make more sense oh please don't you'll anger so many people <laughs> <laughs> so he bob talbot goes to 16 wardlebrook avenue where myra lives with her grandma um accompanied by a detective sergeant wearing a bread delivery man's overall on top of his uniform nice disguise mm. he knocks on the door and he asks myra at the back door if her husband is home um, Myra then denies that she has a husband or that any man lives in the house. However, <laughs> Talbot then identifies himself because he can basically see all the way through the kitchen into the living room. Yeah. You can see Brady sat on the sofa. He's like, why are you fucking lying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Hindley let him into the living room where Brady was lying on a divan. Divan? I, I know it's divan, yeah, divan, but I said divan. Sorry, that was like the poshest <laughs> Sorry, just one sec. If you can hear like banging and clicking in the background, my neighbour has now decided that it's a perfect Sunday afternoon to do garden work. It's fine. So I think he's trying to build himself a shed. It's a work in progress. As long as this gets uploaded on time for my mum to walk the dog. <laughs> but when she listens she to went, it. Yeah, she messaged me yesterday. She was like, well, part one's not up yet. <laughs> she was like, I'm, oh, about, I'm sorry, Claire. I'm about to walk Percy. And that's why I was trying to find it so desperately. And then she was like, it's okay, I'll just listen to it tomorrow morning. I can't listen to it when it gets dark because they're too scary. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, she's so cute. <laughs> so yeah, I, she won't care about background noises as long as it's uploaded on time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 
Brady is laying on the divan um, and he's writing to his employer about his ankle injury that he sustained the night before, killing Evans. Remember that? Mm-hmm. He has a poorly ankle. Talbot explains that he was investigating, quote, an act of violence involving guns that was reported to have taken place the previous evening. Finley denied that there had been any violence and allowed police to look around the house. When police asked for the key to the locked spare bedroom, Hindi said it was at her workplace, but after police offered to take her there to retrieve it, Brady told her to hand the key over. The police went upstairs and found Emma's body and the murder weapon. Brady denied the murder was premeditated, and he said an argument had broken out between him and Evans, and initially denied Hindi's involvement. Brady also claims that David was involved in the murder. Yeah. He was an equal partner to Brady. Do you know what no, I find no. interesting is like I find David Smith just in general like really interesting because depending on which podcast you listen to or like what articles you read, he's either like a hero who stops mm. them from like carrying on, or like he could potentially have just gotten away with something because he had like a previous yeah. criminal record. It's kind of hard to tell actually if he is a good guy or not. But it was also like I I don't think we said it last um in the last episode. But Brady was like grooming Evans, not Evans, um, Smith, David Smith, the same way he groomed Hindley. Yeah. Like he gave it, he gave him all the same reading material and things and got him to this watch the, the same thing. movie. So did, was, David, was David Smith actually like being groomed and like into it and like was going to do bank robberies with Brady and whatever? Yeah. And yeah. then suddenly, re- suddenly realised like, fuck, I'm in, I'm in way over my depth here. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, was was he all for it, and then he just suddenly backed out? Like, yeah. Or actually, was he always innocent? And it's hard to tell because, yeah, like I said, like we listened to that podcast, that morbid podcast, and they like they like think he's a hero. I don't know if it's because, like, I don't know. I was gonna say maybe it's because they're American. Like, I've always thought that I, until maybe this morning, I've never thought he'd have anything to do with it. Part of me is a little bit suspicious. Yeah, yeah. So until I read about um, Hindley had not Hindley, um, Brady had given him all the same materials and was trying to get him to th- sort of like think the way the couple were thinking. I just thought he was like an innocent party in it all, and yeah. he was like to an extent because he obviously didn't want to go through with it. But part of me also, like, when... Well, at the start, did he only go around because he... Or did he know what they were going to do? He just didn't know it was going to be that night, like, that um, sort of thing. Like, we'll get into it in a bit when we talk about, like, um, when they found the audio tape of Leslie. But Brady always has always said that, like, David brought her around so they could take photos, and then David took her again. Yeah, and that yeah. And he took her back and she was alive. Like, Brady always denies that he ever killed her, and... I don't I like I don't believe Ian Brady, but like part of me thinks like you admitted to all the rest of it. Mm, I don't know. Yes, but if he if they'd believed what Brady said, he wouldn't have got he would have still got two life sentences, but he wouldn't have got the third one because he would have been charged with an assault. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just think food for thought. Yeah. So, at first, because of David's criminal record, they were very reluctant to believe him over Brady. Um, so, Jean Ritchie, author of Inside the Mind of a Murderess, I think, well, did you say it's the first biography written about him? Yeah, it's the first, like, investigative biography. So, like, he will have done a lot of work. I think it's a man, sorry, if you're a woman. Um, 
Um, like I never know what the name Jean. Richie, yeah, maybe that is a woman. Yeah. Anyway, Um, so they. This is what they stated in their book. David Smith, I always feel, was vilified. He was vilified by the people of Manchester, who refused to believe he hadn't been involved in other killings. People walked out of pubs if he came in. Nobody would speak to him, and that kind of thing. David Smith's a hero in my eyes because David Smith did what Myra should have done at the beginning. So. I mean, I agree with that. I and he and I think David always said as well, like after, like he, I don't know if he eventually moved out of wherever they lived in, like Gorton, but he said that after Myra and Ian got um, arrested and charged and stuff, like his life was horrendous. Oh yeah, like, yeah. No People used to vandalize their home. And and... I think as well, he said once he he did get arrested for punching someone in the face or something because he came right up to him and he called yeah it was like a a reaction he got i I mean i don't even think it was just punching him he got three years in jail yeah he did he like broke his nose and stuff yeah like Um, it was like gbh wasn't it yeah um i don't know like to me well he can't have been the one to take leslie aunt down into the house because they were seen at the fairground talking to her yeah so they can be placed at the fairground. So to say that, oh no, he's the one who brought her to the house. Mm. Like he's the one who kidnapped her essentially. That's bullshit. Whether the plan, like whether he then took her away or whatever, because you don't know, do you? But I don't know. Like I genuinely think he just turned up that night, not knowing why they wanted him there. And this happened. Like, he might have agreed to do robberies with them and stuff like that, but that's irrelevant. Mm. Like, if he's not agreed to kill children, then you can't really hold him accountable for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's only when the police started trawling through Brady's library of books on murdering sexual perversion that they realised Brady may may be responsible for more than one killing. And in his wallet, they found sheets of paper and a code with plans on how to dispose of Evans' body on the moors. The reason Brady hadn't was because he'd hurt his ankle during the attack on Evans and couldn't carry his body. Just 24 hours after his arrest, the police had enough evidence to charge Brady with murder. Can I just say, that whole thing about the library of books and stuff, I have a shitload of fiction novels and murder. <laughs> <Can you> imagine? <laughs> and like I true crime so cases. many books. <laughs> like, are people going to think that I've committed a murder? Oh my god. So me and Mum have just finished watching a a movie on I've got that Shudder um account mm. on Netflix. Not Netflix Prime. Sponsor us please. Um, what Amazon Prime? But... <laughs> no, it was Shudder. <laughs> I've I've seen loads of people sponsored by them. I mean I don't think we were aware at the following to be have sponsors, but still. Um I can't put that there. Yeah. And yeah, so we just finished one and I can't remember what it was called, but essentially it was um this newlywed couple go on a honeymoon to um hawaii and like all these murders happened all this blah 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 and like within the first 10 minutes i called it like i said like they're the two and all throughout she's like no 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 it can't be it can't be like they're acting so innocent all this and like i'm like just watch just watch and like it was it was right like i'd called it she was like i don't know whether to be scared of you or not (laughs) I have, I have a serious, serious obsession with murders and crime doesn't mean I'm going to commit them. 
exactly but like she was like maybe you should go into like crime writing i'm like thank you this is my dream job yeah well, like, why yeah you to should. write crime fiction god <laughs> you should but, yeah while we're on the subjects of movies as well not relevant at all but if everyone can go and watch jungle i can't <laughs> stop thinking about it jungle on netflix it's a true story he gets lost in the jungle it's the it's the craziest thing i've ever watched and you know what? I don't. I wouldn't. I'm just not a huge fan of Daniel Radcliffe. That's what I was about to Harry say. Potter, I wasn't obviously. gonna watch it because I don't really like Daniel Radcliffe unless he's being Harry Potter, and definitely don't like Daniel Radcliffe with a beard because it just gets, something about it just doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't sit right. <laughs> he's still, he's still the 11 year old in our head. <laughs> but he's like, it's su- it's such a good film. So everyone go watch. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Back to it. Back to the case. So although Hinley wasn't initially arrested, she demanded to go with Brady to the police station, taking her dog with her. Like, why would you need to do that? Like, I just don't get it. I feel like my mom would do that. Yeah, if any, your mom's if any, not a murderer. If any of us, no, I know, sorry, not saying that. But if any of us ever got arrested, she'd probably bring Percy to the police station. To like like an emotional her. support dog. Oh, but he is, that's what he is as well. So yeah, it would work. I mean, though. <laughs> it would work. Um... So she refused to make any statement about Evan's death beyond claiming that it'd been an accident and was allowed to go home on the condition that she returned the next day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> go home, burn all the evidence, but make sure you're back at 9am nice Yeah. <laughs> Clean up the scene. Oh my Get your story straight. Over the next four days, Henley visited her employer and asked to be dismissed so that she would be able to claim unemployment benefits. On one of these occasions, Henley found an envelope belonging to Brady, which she burned in an ashtray straight away, claiming that she didn't open it, but believes it contained plans for bank robberies. Like, I'm sorry, but he's already been charged or arrested or charged whatever with murder. Don't think you have to worry about planned bank robberies. Well, I don't see the why she ever told anyone about that. Like, she burned an envelope. She doesn't even know what was in it. Like, who cares? It could have been an empty envelope. Why are you telling Well, anyone? it was obviously something other than bank ro- plans for bank robberies, I think. Oh, shit. So if they find an ashtray with, like, burnt paper in. No, it might have been a love letter. She could be like, letter. oh, no, it was this. Huh? Might have been a love letter. He was quite Maybe. romantic. Maybe it was a map of where all the dead bodies were. In a little envelope. Oh my god, can you imagine? Do you know what I mean though? It, 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 I think it would have been something more incriminating yeah. than a, a planned bank robbery that didn't go ahead with. Like, yeah, it's not relevant at all. Um, so on the 11th of October, she too was arrested and taken into custody, being charged as an accessory to the murder of Edward Evans and was remanded at Risley. I don't know if that's a police station or... I think it's a place, but I don't understand what has happened from her... From Ian being arrested to her now being arrested, like what's how do they know that she's part of it now? I think as um as they went on, they've obviously done searches of the house and stuff like that. Mm. And then so they've been able to corroborate what David Smith was saying. So as they've been able to corroborate his story, they've also been able to corroborate that she had more of an involvement in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I don't know what the law was back then. Um but right now, you can only have them in custody for 48 hours before you charge them, can't you? I think it's 72. I think it's a 40, 48 initial, and then you can add another 24 hours. Yeah, there. you can add it on then if you've got probable cause, the CPS will add it on. But I don't know what the law was back then for it. Yeah, that's true. Um. 
So police search in the house at Wardlebrook Avenue found an exercise book with the name John Kilbride, um, which made them suspect that Brady and Hindley had been involved in the disappearance of the youngsters. Remember, before this moment, police were only investigating the murder of Edward Evans. Brady told police that he and Evans had fought, but insisted that he and David had murdered Evans and that Hindley had only done what she'd been told to do. Oh, yes, she's innocent. The way he describes her and talks about it once they've been arrested and stuff and after they've cut contact... He didn't seem to have any sort of like emotional t- attachment towards her. So why at the start is he trying to like make sure she gets off? Well, th- it's because he thinks that she can get off just being an accessory to crime or something and that she will then not go to prison and can carry on. Right. That's why okay. he said, and he says he admits that. That's why he did that. He didn't incriminate right. her so that she wouldn't get sent to prison. So basically, I don't know, she could help him out as well, but also maybe she could carry on. Okay, yeah. See, I didn't realise that. Mm. Um, So Smith had said that Brady had asked him to return anything incriminating, such as the dodgy books and any other incriminating evidence, which Brady then packed into suitcases. So these dodgy books, I think, are the ones that he'd shared with um, Hindley as well. Well, they're probably things like like the Nazi stuff and the mind. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like things that normal Um, people wouldn't read. Exactly, yeah. Smith stated that he had no idea what else was in the suitcases um, or where they might be, but he did mention that Brady had a thing about railway stations. That's very specific. Yeah, it's it's a bit of an odd thing, isn't it? And then that it, it happens to lead them right to the suitcase. That's a bit yeah. suspicious to me. It's sort of a bit of a, like a... Oh, I don't know where they are, clear but of a clue. look here. Yeah. Yeah, that's it doesn't sit right with me, it's weird. It's very specific. Um, so a search of left luggage offices around Manchester turned up the suitcases in Manchester's Central Railway Station on the 15th of October. The claim ticket for the luggage was later found in Hindley's prayer book, along with the photo of SS Emma Grease, which is who um, Brady's ideal woman seemed to be. Inside one of the cases were, among an assortment of costumes, notes, photographs and negatives, were nine pornographic photos taken of Leslie Ann Downey, naked with a scarf tied around her mouth, and the 16-minute audio tape recording of the girl screaming and pleading for help. This was the one that we read part of the transcript of in the last episode, so if you're interested and you haven't heard it, go listen. Although it's not pleasant in any way. A very good account of it. Yeah. Which I was surprised that I got from a, uh, like a news article. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like it was, it was very clear in the way they described it and stuff. I think that's because this was such a famous case. Like there were so many... Um... There wasn't really room for error with it. I well, suppose. no, there was also so many like reporters in the, in the mm. um, courts when they were getting tried and stuff. Yeah. Um, so Leslie Ann Downey's mother later confirmed that the recording too was of her daughter, which I think is fucking horrendous. Mm. So have to listen she to had that. to like look at the photos of her daughter naked and like confirm that. You've also exactly. listened to the recording and say, yeah, that's her. And also, as far as I'm aware, her body was still able to be identified. Like it hadn't decomposed as that much. 
so they could still identify her to some extent. Yeah, because I don't know the exact timings, but it's maybe like six months. Yeah. Her body but, so, missing for like six months or something. I know it, she definitely identified her by the clothing that she was wearing mm. that night. Yeah. So to then have to listen to that in order to be like 100% certain that it is her is just... I honestly wouldn't wish a shit on my worst enemy. No. Um, so at this stage, police realised that they were dealing with something much larger than just the murder of Edward Evans. Police making inquiries at neighbouring houses spoke to 12-year-old Pat Hodges, who had on several occasions been taken to Saddleworth Moor by Brady and Hindley, and was able to point out their favourite sites along the A635 road. Can you imagine goes, being like, that girl? Straight through the middle. Apparently, like... She used to go around to her their house all the time and like they used to look after her and Myra was like, Yeah, Ian loved her and stuff. She'd go and sit on his knee and all this and I'm like Oh my god, that girl and now she's looking back in the file. She's looking back at what the fuck. That's not being like, Oh, but he didn't want to kill her. No, but he probably wanted to do other stuff to her as well. Isn't it though, as well? Because you hear you hear I'm I'm just referencing this because I was doing the research on it, but Fred and Rose Westside they had a similar thing. Where they, it was a bit different, but they kidnapped a girl and then let her go. Like they, they, yeah, yeah. Serial killers always seem to slip up somewhere or like just do mm. like it just doesn't make sense. They get too comfortable. Yeah. Um. So I think the only reason they didn't do anything to Pat Hodges is because she was so living so close to them. Yeah, yeah. I think that is why actually. Yeah. So they she they sort of still got a kick out of being around her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the police immediately began to search the area and on the 16th of October found an arm bone protruding past the peat, which was presumed at first to be Kilbride's. The next day it was identified as Leslie Ann Downing, whose body was visually identifiable and Leslie's mother was able to identify the clothing which she'd been buried in the grave. So from what I saw on one of the documentaries, they'd searched this particular area for hours like it was coming up to the end of the day and visibility was getting just horrendous so the um head officer her officer in charge of the search was like come on we need to pack up like there's we can't do any more today and one of the officers right was like okay but i like i need i need a wee <laughs> like, um, yeah. so he went yeah and as he looked down he saw this like popping out of the ground like and i just think that is like that's so lucky do you know what I mean like he it's just the fact that they'd searched all day that area and then he just happened to wander over like it's lucky that he didn't find it on like as he was weeing because any potential evidence like that's like nightmare inducing though yeah 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 definitely so in addition to the photographs of Leslie there were also a number of scenes on the moors so Smith had told police that Brady had boasted of photographic proof of multiple murders and officers struck by Brady's decision to remove the apparently innocent landscapes from the house appealed to locals for assistance in finding the locations to the match the photographs, which it it sort of is like odd, isn't it? Because if it's just pictures of them on the moors and stuff, like there's one with Myra just holding the dog and stuff, you wouldn't really think that was anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But then, uh, yeah, I like, guess they've suddenly put two and two together and thought, well, he's got rid of this. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it must mean something, mustn't it? Yeah. So on the 21st of October, they found the badly decomposed body of Kilbride, which would be identified by the clothing. The same day, already being held for the murder of Evans, Brady and Hindley appeared at the Hyde Magistrates Court, charged with Downey's murder as well. Each was brought before the court separately and remained into custody for a week. They made only a two-minute appearance on the 28th of October and were again remanded into custody. They were like, yeah, we don't need to talk about this. You're guilty. See you later. Yeah, basically. Two minutes done. Um, there was like, I mean, there was no way of them getting out on bail while the investigation oh God, went no on. No way. Like, there's literally nothing to talk about. I don't know if you can... Can you be given bail for murder? Um, I don't know, actually. I th- I have a feeling you can't. I mean, I might be wrong, but I have a feeling you can't. But even if you could, the bail must be fucking high, like ridiculous. Yeah. So the investigating officers suspected Brady and Hindley of murdering other children and teenagers who had disappeared from the areas in and around Manchester over the previous years. And the ser- searches for bodies continued after the discovery of Kilbride's body. But with winter setting in, it was called off in November. Because the ground would have got too hard. There was no way they would have been able to dig through it or anything like that. Um, presented with the evidence on the, of the tape recording, Brady admitted to taking photographs of Downey, but insisted that she'd been brought to Wardlebrook Avenue by two men who had subsequently taken her away again alive. All right, so name the two men then. Like, mm, yeah. This could potentially get you, you off for one of the murders. Like... Well, why are you why are you willing to be charged for it if you've not done it? Do you know what I mean? Like he just he for someone who was supposed to be as intelligent as people make out he was, he was fucking stupid. So by the second of December nineteen sixty five, Brady had been charged with the murders of Kilbride, Downey and Evans. Hindley had been charged with the murders of Downey and Evans and being an accessory to the murder of Kilbride. Which I'm not sure why she was only an accessory. What, in Kilbride? Was it for, like, lack of evidence? Yeah, I guess because it's a lot of he said, she said. So for Kilbride especially, she, she said, I think, I mean, I, I think it's Kilbride. She says, like, oh, I was in the car the whole time. Yeah. Or, like, I mean, I suppose down, they can hear it on the tape as well. Yeah. And, like, Edward Evans, like, you were in the house. Leslie Ann Downey, there's evidence of you being there. But Kilbride yeah, I suppose. doesn't have any evidence then. Especially because yeah. the body's so badly decomposed, you can't even like see it from any evidence like. get any trace evidence like yeah i'm not even sure trace evidence was a massive thing in 65 definitely not yeah at the committal hearing on the 6th of december brady was charged with the murders of evans kilbride and downey and hinley with the murders of evans and downey as well as harboring brady in the knowledge that he had killed kilbride mm. so it was like um withholding evidence yeah, I suppose. Not, not not going to the police and telling them yeah, yeah, yeah. So many of the photographs taken by Brady and Hinley on the moor featured Hinley's dog puppet, sometimes as a puppy. So it just shows how long it went on for. Yeah. I suppose. Um, to help the date of the photos, detectives had a veterinary surgeon examine the dog to determine his age. The examination required general anaesthetic, from which puppet did not recover. Oh. The dog died. <laughs> Hinley was furious. One thing I can understand, because that would fucking make me angry as well. Yeah, but she's... 
<laughs> but she could said, this is when I bought it. She like accuses them of murdering her dog, but she literally fucking <laughs> murdered children. <laughs> How, what, where is your moral compass and why is it just fucking spinning out of control? What's going on here? <laughs> why is she so mad? Part of me, I know it's not the dog's fault, but part of me is like, well, at least you like you deserve to be angry about something. Oh, uh, wait, hang on. I'm it is silly because it is just a dog like you've already killed children now you've got a dog's life on your hands as well like read the quote just tell them how old the fucking dog was lydia read the quote oh god okay all right i'll get to it i'll get to it hindley was furious and accused the police of murdering the dog one of the few occasions detective witnessed any emotional response from her Sorry, I know I'm laughing, but it is, it is ridiculous. Like, you've murdered five children. Read like, the quote! I am! I'm fucking getting to it! <laughs> Calm down! So, with a letter, Hindley wrote to her mother. Oh my god, okay. I'm not even going to get through this quote. I feel as though my heart has been torn to pieces. I don't think anything could hurt more than this has. Fucking think about the mothers, then, of the children you killed, you wanker. <laughs> The only consolation is that some moron might have got hold of Puppet and hurt him. Oh! Like how Excuse you got me? hold of these kids and hurt them? Who's the does moron? She not, does she not uh Myra the moron? The we should put that on t-shirts. Oh my god. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm not mad that Puppet died because at least she can feel the, some sort of pain. I know, but, part, but I feel a bit, little, I feel a bit bad. regret what they did. It, maybe Puppet was an evil dog. That's what I'm trying to think. It's nature versus nurture, mate. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Puppet was evil as well. I mean, obviously I'm sad a dog died, but I'm even sadder that five children died. Like, let's be honest. Yeah, I'm also not mad that it was Myra Hindley's dog. That's what I, I mean. At least she it, had... But... At least she had some sort of pain done to her for yeah. the amount of shit that happened. She is the fucking worst. Oh, honestly. So even after arrest and custody, the couple still didn't separate. Given the same solicitor, the couple met together and were able to exchange notes. Hmm. Okay. What a good idea. In these notes, they would detail sick fantasies, and in one, they encouraged the throwing of acid onto the face of a grieving relative of one of their victims. Brady was so deluded by this point that he looked forward to his moment in the public eye. I think... Didn't they have, like, I heard somewhere that they had, like, this six, seven, eight rule thing. So she'd write him a letter and Mm. whether or not they had, like, secret messages in the letters. And depending on whether or not there was a secret message, she would underline the date. And so it would be, like, the sixth sixth word and the seventh word of, like, the eighth line or something like that. Like, it would go down and you'd be able to read this secret note. Oh. No, I can't remember. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really surprise me because people said that they had like their own sort of like secret code anyway, just day to day. Like if Myra said one word to him, it would mean like a whole conversation in that one word. This like, carried yeah, they had like their own secret language, but this carried on like well into when they were in prison. Um Yeah. And I know at one point her and Brady like fell out and he like kind of I think he threatened to like give the letters to the police. 
Oh, really? But also, like, why were they allowed to write to each other? It's mental. And you know what's even more mental is that after this, when they both get sentenced, she then tries to be like, well, it's not fair that I was charged with Brady. Like, um, everyone thinks he's evil, so everyone thinks I'm evil. But you were fucking happy to exchange notes with him, um, and you were okay with it when it was happening, but now all of a sudden, because you've got charged with murder, you're not okay with it. Yeah. I don't know. So according to Dr. David Holmes, a criminal psychologist, he stated, Brady regarded the courtroom as something that he could almost preside over. His overconfidence and narcissism actually made him think that everyone would believe what he said. The trial lasted just 14 days and began on the 16th of April 1966 before Justice Fenton Atkinson. The courtroom was fitted with security screens to protect Brady and Hindi, who were charged with the murder of Evans, Downey and Kilbride. The Attorney General, Sir Elwyn Jones, led the prosecution, assisted by William Mars Jones. Brady was defended by the Liberal Member of Parliament, El- El- Emlyn Hewson, QC, and Hindi was defended by Godfrey Halpern, QC, recorder of Salford from 1964. Both were experienced Queen's counsel. Can you imagine having to defend them? Imagine, yeah, I know, imagine, like... <laughs> David Smith was the chief prosecution witness. Before the trial, the News of the World offered Smith £1,000 for the rights to his story. The American People magazine made a com- competing offer of £6,000, equivalent to about £20,000 um, and £110,000 in 2019. When Smith accepted the News of the World offer, why would you expect accept the lesser one? Because they agreed to pay him afterwards as well. Uh, I want to be rich. Mm. Um, its editors have promised additional future payments for syndication and serialisation. He agreed to be paid £15 weekly until the trial and £1,000 in a lump sum if Brady and Hindley were convicted. During the trial, the judge and defence barristers repeatedly questioned Smith and his wife about the nature of the arrangement. At first, Smith refused to name the newspaper, risking contempt of court. When he eventually identified the news of the world, Jones, as Attorney General, immediately promised an investigation. However, comparing Smith's testimony with his initial statements to the police, Atkinson, though describing the paper's actions as a gross interference with the Court of Justice, concluded that it was not substantially affected by the financial incentive. Jones decided not to charge the news of the world on similar grounds. Yeah, so basically his story didn't change based on whether he was getting paid or not. Yeah. It was it was that all the way through, like, with what the police were saying as well. Yeah. Both entered pleas of not guilty. Brady testified for over eight hours, Hindley for six. Brady admitted to striking Evans with an axe, but claimed that someone else had killed Evans, pointing to the pathologist's statement that Evans' death had been, quote, accelerated by strangulation. Brady's calm, undisguised arrogance did not endear him to the jury, and neither did his pedantry. Hindley denied any knowledge that the photographs of Saddleworth Moore found by police had been taken near the graves of their victims. A 16-minute tape recording of Downey, on which the voices of Brady and Hindley were audible, was played in open court. The audible torture and pointless cries for mercy were played in court, and even hardened policemen broke down in tears. Hindley admitted that her attitude towards Downey was cruel, but claimed <laughs> that it was only because she was afraid that someone might hear Downey screaming. Hindley claimed that when Downey was being undressed, she herself was, quote, downstairs. When the pornographic photos were taken, she was looking out the window, and when Danny was being strangled, she was running a bath. How convenient, Myra. 
Oh, she's just ridiculous. Like, come up with a better lie. Like, When asked his reaction to the anguished cries um, on the tape recorded, Brady described them as unusual. I mean, are they unusual? I think anyone that's being undressed and, like, molested and murdered, you know, I think he would cry. That would be, like, his reaction is unusual. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he can recognise that it's unusual, but, like, he's because he just doesn't feel anything towards it. Yeah. Asked afterwards what happened when they'd finished taking pornographic photos of Leslie, Brady said, we got dressed. This one slip fatally implicated Hindley as Brady himself places Hindley in the room and having been involved. On the 6th of May, after having deliber- deliberated for a little over two hours, the jury found Brady guilty of all three murders and Hindley guilty of the murders of Downey and Evans. As the death penalty for murder had just been abolished, while Brady and Hindley were held on remand, the judge passed the only sentence that the law allowed, life imprisonment. How lucky. Did well, it literally... I, mean, I don't even know if it is lucky because he said that I guess he, he wanted to die. Yeah. So, I mean, personally, I don't agree with the death penalty. No, I don't. Do you know what I mean? So I I prefer the fact that they didn't get it. I think it's an easy way out. Um. Yeah, I agree with you, but I also think, like, the amount of money that goes into the prison system, like, yeah, we've had to, we've had to pay to keep them yeah. both alive. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, It's like a two, two-edged knife. Is that a phrase? Double-edged sword. Yeah. <laughs> Two-edged knife. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, morally, I don't agree with the death penalty, but I also don't agree with my taxes paying to keep people like this alive. It's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Brady was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences, and Hindley was given two, plus a concurrent seven-year term for harbouring Brady in the knowledge that he had murdered Kilbride. Brady was taken to Durham Prison and Hindley sent to Holloway Prison. In his closing Holloway, is that down by London? Oh, I'm pretty sure Holloway's now shut. I think I think yeah. I think it was so run down and like condemned they had to shut it. But yeah, Holloway is in London. My sister went to Royal Holloway University and that's in London. Yeah, I've heard of Royal Holloway. Yeah, closed in 2016. Yeah. It was opened in 1852. Yeah, so can you imagine what it was like? Yeah. I can't, I literally can only imagine, because I've been to Birmingham prison. I don't even know when that was made, but, like, it, it's a shithole. Yeah. I can't even imagine. And the problem is with, like, prisons is because they're so overcrowded all the time. There's no space, like, say, I don't know how big Holloway Prison, but say say there's a thousand people in there. You can't Mm. move people out of a wing or out of the prison to fix it. Yeah, and it's not as if you can transfer them all to another one. No, so it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse until eventually the government has to just condemn it. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, I can only imagine what it was like for her there. Hopefully it was horrendous. Hopefully, yeah. Um, In his closing remarks, Judge Atkinson described the murders as truly horrible and the accused as two sadistic killers of the utmost depravity. He recommended they spend a very long time in prison before being considered for parole, but did not stipulate a tariff. He called Brady wicked beyond belief and said he saw no reasonable possibility to reform for him, though he did not think the same necessarily true for Hindley once removed from Brady's influence. Throughout the trial... And it's just saying 
oh, she's a woman, so she can't be as culpable of it? Oh, I don't know, because, because if you look at it generally, women tend, not all women, but women tend to be influenced by men, especially men that they're like infatuated with and in love with. You see all the time, like with domestic abuse victims, like they stay. Yeah, no, I do get that, but... And I I'm not saying that she's a victim, but I think why? she was very she was very good at coming across as a victim. But I think you'd be surprised at how much that role reversal happens as well. Yeah, but I think especially in the like, 60s when this was happening as well, people weren't thinking like that. I think it's just a lot of people are too quick to be like, well, she's a woman, she can't have been responsible. Yeah, no, I totally agree. But I think part of that is hindsight. And I think part of that also is now that we're like, what like 40 years 40 50 years on from yeah but you even now you get people who are still supporting her yeah yeah but you get a lot more you also have trump supporters so yeah (laughs) but i think i think especially in like the 60s and 70s when this was happening it was not very common for Mm. women to be evil like like we now know that they can be Mm. yeah Mm. she's basically used in society she's very clever she is very clever yeah. I don't think people give the credit of how clever she is. Yeah. Like, they always say how intelligent he was, but she was, like, I think she was highly manipulative. Because they say like, that, like, he played her, but actually she played him too, because he actually, for a long time, denied that she was involved in it so that she could get that's out. What I mean, though, and like, he, it's... He thinks that he's playing her and, like, oh, he's, she's going to get out and carry on doing what I want her to do, but actually, she, you don't know, she's playing him too to try and get out. Yeah, and just be free. Like, yeah, because she wants to be free as much as like anyone else. Yeah, would. but that's what I mean, though. Like, I think people don't realize that she played him as much as he yeah, played her. Yeah, like, true. She was just as manipulative towards him as he was to her. Like, mm. they were both as bad as each other. Like, just put them on level playing ground. Like, it just yeah, it just does not happen. <laughs> so throughout the trial, Brady and Hindley stuck rigidly to their strategy of lying. And Hindi was later described as a quiet, controlled, impassive witness who lied remorselessly. So in 1985, Brady allegedly told Fred Harrison, a journalist working for the Sunday People, that he had killed Reed and Bennett, something the police already suspected as both lived near Brady and Hindley at the time and had disappeared around the same time as Kilbride and Downey. Uh, Greater Manchester Police reopened the investigation, now to be headed by Detective Chief and Superintendent Peter Topping. There's just the I amount like that of name. Titles. I like that name. Hello, Peter Topping. Hello. No, I just mean the amount of titles that they add on, like Detective, Detective Chief, Superintendent Chief, Peter Topping. Superintendent. Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> um, yeah. Who was the head of GMP's Criminal Investigation Department, the CID? So since Brady and Hindley's arrest, newspapers have been keen to connect them to other missing children and teenagers from the area. One such victim, Stephen Jennings, a three-year-old West Yorkshire boy who was last seen alive in December 1962. Um, his body was found buried in a field in 1988. But the following year, his father, William, William Je- Jennings, was found guilty of his murder. I want to know more about that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Jennifer Taji, a 14-year-old girl who disappeared from Oldham's children's home in December 1964, was mentioned in the press some 40 years later, but was confirmed by the police to be alive. So she'd just run away. I love that. They're like, nah, she's alive. We just forgot to tell you all. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this fellow claimed in 2004 that Hinley had told another inmate that she and Brady had murdered a sixth victim, a teenage girl. But obviously didn't give any details. This is why I don't think they had any other victims, because... Yeah, because they knew these five people's names. Yeah. Yeah, like, I guess that is all right. true. If you're, if you're going to be telling other people that you've killed others, why aren't you giving details? Like, yeah. This is also like why I think that the reason they didn't find Keith Bennett's body was a bit of a game to them at the start as well. Yeah. We're going to get onto that. We'll talk about that. Yeah. So on the 3rd of July, 1985, DCS, there we go, didn't have to say the whole DCS, title. DCS, Peter Topping, pleased <laughs> to see you. DCS Topping visited Brady, then being held at Gartry Prison in Leicestershire but found him scornful of any suggestion that he had confessed to more murders. How dare you? How dare you suggest that you're more than five people? Five is the magic number. (laughs) Why on earth would I kill more than five people? (laughs) What could I possibly have to gain from that? Yeah, six is far too many. God. (laughs) I didn't have anywhere left in my suitcases, okay? Um, so police nevertheless decided to resume their search of Saddleworth Moor, once more using the photographs taken by Brady and Hindley to help them identify possible burial sites. In November 1986, Bennett's mother wrote to Hindley, begging to know what had happened to her son, a letter that Hindley seemed to be genuinely moved by. According to who? According Probably to her? Himself. Yeah. It ended... I am a simple woman. I work in the kitchens of Christie's Hospital. It has taken me five weeks' labour to write this letter because it is so important to me that it is understood by you what it is, a plea for help. Please, Miss Hinley, help me. But you know what? I actually think that she she says she's moved by this letter, but she doesn't reply to this letter. Bennett's no. mother has to write her again for her to then reply yeah. to her. Yeah. So you can't be that moved. No. So police visited Hindley, um, who was held at Cookhamwood in Cadden. Oh. Um, I think that's near you. That's Cookhamwood is in Rochester. Um, yeah. A few days after she received the letter, and although she refused to admit any involvement in the killings, she agreed to help by looking at the photos and maps to try and identify the spots she had visited with Brady. She showed particular interest in photos of the area around Holland Brown Knoll and Shiny Brook but said that it was impossible to be sure of the locations without visiting them all. Home Secretary Douglas Hurd agreed with Topping that a visit would be worth risking despite security problems presented by the threats against Hindley. Writing in 1989, Topping said that he felt quite cynical about Hindley's motivation in helping with the police. Although Winnie Johnson's letter may have played a part, he believed that Hindley, knowing of Brady's precarious mental state, was concerned that he might cooperate with the police and reap any available public approval benefit. Yeah, so, so she's trying to help, but it's still very much for your own personal benefit. For her, like if she ever goes for parole or whatever, yeah, she can be like, well, I did try and help. Like It's all about Myra, basically. Yeah. Well, according to Myra. On December 16th, 1986, Hindley made the first of two visits to assist the police search of the moor. 
Um, police closed all roads to the moor, and which was patrolled by two hundred officers. Just like the amount of. Do you know how much like, overtime these police are going to get paid? That yeah. was so worth it. I'd be like, thank you, Myra. The amount of like resources that went into this went. Yeah, and, and then it's like all for nothing. Where it was, yeah. Um, some of which who were armed as well. Him and his solicitor left Cook and Wood at four thirty a.m. Flew to the moor by helicopter from an airfield near Maidstone, and then they were driven and walked around the area until three p.m. She had difficulty connecting what she saw to her memories, and apparently was nervous of the helicopters flying overhead. The press described the visit as a fiasco, a publicity stunt, and a mindless waste of money. But Topping defended it, saying, "We needed a thorough, systematic search of the moor." It would never have been possible to carry out such a search in private, which I understand his defense of it. I just think it's like it's still a waste. Do you know what I mean? Know. I, I, do, do I get what you I get why you would say that, but they also said that they they did like that. The police obviously searched the moors, but they also used I can't remember the technical word for it, but like when you can check to see if the soil has been displaced or moved. Any irregularities in the soil, and they couldn't find anything. So this is kind. This is kind of like a last resort. Yeah, I mean, I think that bit comes later because that technology wasn't around then. But they will have used like dogs and everything there as well. Like, I do like. I think it was a case of they literally have nowhere else to go with this. The last thing they can do is get them out there to, in the hopes that they assist them. Like, I understand from the police's point of view. There is still a lot of like public pressure as well, still, even though they're in prison, they've been sentenced, like family members are still campaigning and like yeah, writing still the justice to Myra. Like it's still very much in the public eye and I think sometimes like people feel pressure. Yeah. Definitely. Can you imagine? If it happened now, the amount of like abuse the police and everything would get on Twitter and all that sort of yeah. stuff, like um, on the 19th of December of the same year, David Smith, who was then 38, spent about four hours on the moor helping police identify areas to be searched. Why? Like, how can he help them? Well, because he's lived there all his life and they've they've taken these photos and he might be able to know where the, where the places are they took mm-hmm. photos in. I don't know if it was a case. I I wasn't sure whether it was a case that she that he'd gone with them and on some occasions. No, the well, he always says that he never did. Yeah. So Topping continued to visit Hindley in prison along with her solicitor Michael Fisher, and her spiritual counsellor Peter Timms, who had been a prisoner governor before coming a Methodist minister. Sorry, but I need a spiritual counsellor as well. Oh my god, you need anything but a spiritual counsellor. <laughs> <laughs> On the 10th of February 1987, she formally confessed to the involvement of all five murders, but this was not made public for more than a month. I wonder what caused her to finally say, you know what, I had an involvement. Because of her spiritual counsellor and her Methodist minister, she found God and decided <laughs> to tell the Did truth. Did God talk to her and say, listen... The, the Jesus, jigs up here. You best said, just listen, you fucking psycho bitch. Otherwise, you're all, like you're already on your way to hell. Confess, and I'll I'll change my mind as whether I'll let you through And I'll gates. get you a really nice hotel room in the hell hotel. <laughs> I'll make sure you don't get tortured too much. You can have a double bed, not a single. 
She's like, all right, fair. Uh, the tape recording of her statement was over 17 hours long. Topping described it as a very well-worked performance in which I believe she told me just as much as she wanted me to know and no more. He added that he was struck by the fact that she was never there when the killings took place. She was always in the car, over the brow of the hill, in the bathroom and even in the case of Evans's murder in the kitchen. He felt he had witnessed a great performance rather than a genuine confession. Thank you, Mr. Topping. <laughs> we all thought that as well, all along. <laughs> what a brilliant actress she is. Oh, give her a Oscar. Um, police visited Brady in prison once again and told him of Hindley's confession, at which he refused. <laughs> which at first he refused to believe. Once presented with some of the details that Hindley had provided of Reed's abduction, Brady decided that he too was prepared to confess, but on one condition, that he immediately afterwards was given the means to commit suicide, a request that which was obviously impossible for authorities to comply with. They're like, like, no, you don't get to okay, die, you have to live. Right. <laughs> you have to live your fucking miserable life forever and ever and ever. You don't get to die, you don't get that privilege. But how he would think that the police would be like, all right, here you go. Go and go and top yourself. Like, you've helped us now. Go, Bobos. Like, Never. about the same time, Winnie Johnson sent another letter to Hindley, again pleading with her to insist the police in finding the body of her son, Keith. In the letter, Johnson was sympathetic to Hindley over the criticism surrounding her first visit. Hindley, who had not replied to the first letter, responded by thanking Johnson for both letters, explaining that her decision not to reply to the first resulted from the negative publicity that surrounded it. So she was scared of being even more judged if she'd replied. Like, yeah. Everyone already knows you're a wanker, Myra. <laughs> she claimed that had Johnson written to her 14 years earlier she would have confessed and helped to the police. Okay, Soz Winnie, it's your fault that we've not found your child yet. If you'd just done this a little bit earlier, I probably would have helped. No. Like, stop blaming the mother. Like, oh, It's probably taken her 14 years to get up the courage to have to write that letter to your child's murderer. Like, Yeah. She also paid tribute to Topping and thanked Johnson for her sincerity. Hinley made her second visit to the moor in March 1987. This time, the level of security surrounding her visit was considerably higher. She stayed overnight in Manchester at a flat of the police chief in charge of the GMP training at Sedgley Park, Prestwich, and visited the moor twice. Can you imagine being like, yeah, Myra Hinley stayed over at my flat once? Yeah. (laughs) After I know exactly what she did. Yeah, but I just find um, that weird. Like, there must have been someone, like, awake the whole time. Oh, yeah, she would have had a guard on the door and everything, wouldn't she? Yeah. She confirmed the police that two areas in which they were concentrating in the search, Holland Brown Knoll and Hoagrain, were correct, although she was unable to locate either of the graves. She did, though, later remember that as Pauline Reed was being buried... She had been sitting next to her on a patch of grass and could see the rocks of Holland Brown Knoll silhouetted against the night sky. How how is that? 
You go 30 degrees north for 30 centimetres and then 10 degrees south for 578 miles and da 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 What the fuck? Because you know what? Sometimes I think I can see France from my fucking window, but I actually can't. How? That's not even helpful. Oh, if you look up into in the fact, night sky, you can see the aurora borealis. Honestly, in April 1987, news of Henley's confession, confession became public. Amid strong media interest, Lord Longford pleaded for her release, writing that continuing her detention to satisfy mob emotion was not right. Fisher persuaded Hindley to release a public statement which touched on her reasons for denying her guilt previously, her religious experience in prison and the letter from Johnson. She said that she saw no possibility of release and also exonerated David Smith from any part of the murders, other than that of Evans. Like, you're still saying that he was responsible for that murder. Like, Interesting. Over the next few months, interest in the search waned, but Hinley's clue had focused efforts to a specific area. On the 1st of July, after more than 100 days of searching, they found Reed's body three feet below the surface, just 100 yards from where Downey's body had been found. Mm. Like, after 100 days of searching, you only get 100 yards away from the previous burial site. It's just mad. Brady had been cooperating with police for some time, and when the news reached him, he made a formal confession to Topping. In a statement to the press, said that he too would help the police in their search. He was taken to the moor on the 3rd of July, but seemed to lose his bearings, blaming the changes in the intervening years. The search was called off at 3pm, by which time a large crowd of press and television reporters had gathered on the moor, so they obviously hadn't put as much effort into blocking off the moor as they had for Hindley. Yeah, I think more people knew that Bra- that Myra was going to the moors. Yeah, I suppose. Topping refused to allow Brady a second visit to the moor before police called off their search t- on the 24th of August. Brady was taken to the moor on a second time on the 8th of December and claimed to have located Bennett's burial site, but the body was never found. Soon after his first visit to the moor, Brady wrote a letter to a BBC reporter giving some sketchy details of five additional deaths that he claimed to have been involved in. A man in Piccadilly area of Manchester, another man on Saddleworth Moor, two more in Scotland, and a woman whose body was allegedly dumped in a canal. Police, failing to have discovered any unsolved crimes matching the details that he supplied, decided that there was insufficient evidence to launch an official investigation. Hinley told Topping that she knew nothing of these killings. Like, I don't understand why he's lying. Wasting people's time. Yeah. It's because he wants attention. Mm. Although Brady and Hinley had confessed to the murders of Reed and Bennett, the director of public prosecutions decided that nothing would be gained from a further trial. As both already were serving life sentences, no further punishment would be inflicted. Or could be inflicted, I suppose. I find but, that a bit shitty, though. If I was like a parent yeah. or a family member of Reed and Bennett, I'd be like, no, I want them to be. I want that to yeah, be exactly. on their records. It's not, it's not just about punishing them further, it's about getting justice for the families. But also, these sentences are running concurrent, which means they're running at the same time as each other. It's not one after the other like you get in America. So they both yeah. have the potential, the potential to um, be granted parole. Yeah, yeah. So I would, I would definitely be like, um, no, thank you. I want a prosecution. In 2003, the police launched an Operation Maida and again searched the moor for Bennett's body, this time using sophisticated resources such as US reconnaissance satellite, which could detect soil disturbances. Oh, that's what in I was talking mid- about earlier. Yeah. In mid-2009, 
The Greater Manchester Police said that they had exhausted all avenues in the search for Bennett and that only a major scientific breakthrough or fresh evidence would see the hunt for his body to restart and that any further participation by Brady would be via a walk through the moors virtually using a 3D model rather than a visit by him to the moor. Donations from the public funded a search by volunteers from a Welsh search and rescue team in 2010. In 2012, it was claimed that Brady may have given details of the location of Bennett's body to a visitor. A woman was subsequently arrested on suspicion of preventing the burial of a body without lawful excuse. But a few months later, the Crown Prosecution Service announced that there was insufficient evidence to press charges. In 2017, police asked the court to order that two locked briefcases owned by Brady be opened, arguing that they might contain clues to the location of Bennett's body. The application was denied on the grounds that no prosecution was likely to result in this. Oh, I just... But again, it's not about the... It's not about just about the prosecution of Brady and Hindley. It's about the justice for the families. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But, so, let's talk about their time in prison, shall we? Let's do it. So it's reported that Brady maintained a long-distance relationship with Hindley for his first few years in jail. But from love letters and requests for marriages, rifts soon started to appear. Brady accepted he would never again be free, and Hindley couldn't accept that. The couple drifted apart. When Hindley entered the connection, he said that she was a a manipulative liar and as evil as him. Betrayed, he plotted his revenge. So... I read, oh, I heard somewhere that she sent him a letter and she was like, it's done, like, we're over. Um, mm. I don't know if she said, like, please don't reply to this letter, but then he just never bothered. Yeah. He, like, literally didn't care. He was like, I'm not going to even reply to her. He literally just didn't give a fuck. But then she's then gone on to say that, like, he wrote her a letter saying, like, if you if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself, blah, blah, blah. And he just, when he's told about these things that she said, he just says, like, she flatters herself. <laughs> like I don't care about her that much. <laughs> he is so like. Can you imagine like being like, yeah, he loves me, and then like the the man you love just being like, yeah, you flatter yourself, like you're not that important to him. Like <laughs> I fucking kill people for you. Yeah. So Dr. Alan Keatley was requested to meet Brady by Anne West, the mother of Brady's fourth victim, Leslie Ann Downey. Dr. Keatley was um, an eccentric academic and former head of religious studies. He would help form a relationship with Brady based on their mutual interest in religion. Brady's first question to Dr. Alan Keatley was, how many instruments of murder do you suppose there are in this room? Okay. Following his conviction, Brady was moved to Durham Prison, where he was asked to live in solitary confinement. He spent 19 years in mainstream prisons before being diagnosed as a psychopath in November 1985 and sent to the high-security Park Lane Hospital, now known as Ashworth Psychiatric Hospital, in Merseyside. He made it clear that he never wanted to be released. So, the trial judge recommended that his life sentence should mean life and successive Home Secretaries agreed with that decision. In 1982, the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Lane, said of Brady, This is the case, if ever there has been one, when a man should stay in prison till he dies. The death of John Straffin in November ni- the death of John Straffin in November two thousand and seven, who had spent fifty five years in prison for murdering three children, meant that Brady became the longest serving prisoner in England and Wales. Although he refused to work with Ashworth's psychiatrist, Brady occasionally corresponded with people outside the hospital, subject to prison authorities' censorship, including Lord Longford, 
writer Colin Wilson and various journalists. In one letter written in 2005, he claimed that the murders were merely an existential exercise of just over a year, which was concluded in December 1964. By then, he claimed he and Hindley had turned their attention to armed robbery, for which they began to prepare by acquiring guns and vehicles. During several years of interactions with forensic psychologist Chris Cowley, including face-to-face meetings, Brady told him of an aesthetic fascination he had with guns, despite his never having used one to kill. He complained bitterly about conditions at Ashworth, which he hated. In 1999, his right wrist was broken in what he claimed was an hour-long, unprovoked attack by Star. Brady subsequently went on hunger strike, but while English law allows patients to refuse treatment, those being treated for mental disorders under the Mental Health Act 1983 have no such right if the treatment is for their mental disorder. He was therefore force-fed and transferred to another hospital for tests after he fell ill. He recovered and in March 2000 asked for a judicial review of the legality of the decision to force-feed him, but was refused permission. So what I think this so, means is that if he was in prison, they he wouldn't be force-fed, but because he's in Ashworth and he's um, got this diagnosed mental disorder now, they are legally allowed to force-feed him to keep him alive. So Ian is quoted as saying, Myra gets a potentially fatal brain condition while I have to fight simply to die. I've had enough. I want nothing. My objective is to die and release myself from this once and for all. So you see my death strike is rational and pragmatic. I am only sorry I didn't do it decades ago and I'm eager to leave this cesspit in a coffin. What a bitch. (laughs) Oh, he can't stand him. Like, no one feels sorry for you. Do you know what's so, like... (laughs) I just thought of this randomly. But do you know what's so sad? It's like... I've actually dated egotistical pricks like Ian Brady. <laughs> like, you know, people that, like, who says my death strike is rational and pragmatic? Shut up, you fucking idiot. I'm sorry, but if he wanted to kill himself, he would have found a way. Yeah. There's, there's people who do it with no sort of cause and you had no idea they, they would do it that way. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think he ever had any intention of wanting to die. He just wanted to whine. Like, woe is me. Like, no one feels sorry for you. You're evil. You killed children. While at Ashworth in 2001, Brady wrote The Gates of Janus, which was published by Feral House, an underground US publisher. The book, Brady's analysis of serial murder and specific serial killers, sparked outrage when announced in Britain. According to Chris Cowley, Brady regretted Hindley's imprisonment and the consequences of their actions, but not necessarily the crimes themselves. He saw no point in making a public apology. Instead, he expressed remorse through actions. The mother of the remaining undiscovered victim, Bennett, received a letter from Brady at the end of 2005, in which she said he claims that he could take police to within 20 yards of her son's body, but the authorities would not allow it. Brady did not refer directly to Keith by name and did not claim he could take investigators directly to the grave, but spoke of clarity of his recollections. In 2012, Brady applied to be returned to prison, reiterating his desire to starve himself to death. At a mental health tribunal in June the following year, Brady claimed that he suffered not from paranoid schizophrenia, as his doctors at Ashworth maintained, but a personality disorder. His application was rejected and the judge stated that Brady continues to suffer from a mental disorder, which is of a nature and degree which makes it appropriate for him to continue to receive medical treatment. 
that's for me that's like Myra saying oh well I've been reformed now I'm not as bad as I was like yeah. you are in no position to say that you haven't got this mental condition that you've been diagnosed with yeah yeah and you can't just all of a sudden not have it either yeah like After... you can trust me guys I know I've not got it like, yeah trust me I only killed five kids I'm good for my word <laughs> After receiving end-of-life care, Brady died of a restrictive pulmonary disease at Ashworth Hospital on the 15th of May 2017. The inquest found that he died of natural causes and his hunger strike had not been a contributory factor. Brady had refused food and fluids for more than 48 hours on various occasions, causing him to be fitted with a nasogastric tube, although his inquest noted that his body mass index was not a cause for concern, because everyone needs to go by body mass index. Yeah, it's so accurate. He was cremated without ceremony and his ashes disposed of at sea during the night. Spooky. Uh, So when you're swimming in the ocean, you might be... When you accidentally swallow a little bit of seawater, you might have accidentally eaten Ian Brady. Nah, it was probably done over by uh, in the Irish Sea. No one's going in that sea. (laughs) In the worst (laughs) sea there is. (laughs) Um, so Hindley lodged an unsuccessful appeal against her conviction immediately after the trial. Brady and Hindley corresponded until 1971, which she ended the relationship, like we said before. Um, the two, wait, hang on. okay, the two remained in sporadic contact for several months, but Hindley had fallen in love with one of the prison warders. Should I say warder or warden? Warden. Yeah, either, to be yeah. fair. It's a prison warden. Okay. okay. Um, Patricia Carnes. A former assistant governor claimed that such relationships were not unusual in Holloway at the time, as many of the officers were gay and involved relationships either with one another or with inmates. Like, that is, surely that's illegal. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's really illegal. It's misconduct in a public office. It's big time illegal. Yeah. So, I'm, like, I'm pretty sure... Like they're just brushing it off, like, oh, yeah, it was normal at the time. Um, Carnes does go to prison when she gets caught. Yeah, well, she gets caught for having to try and uh, plan an escape, wasn't she? That's but you, she more often for. than not, if, some, if you are doing something like that, you would go to prison anyway. Yeah, yeah. Hinley successfully petitioned to have her status as a Category A prisoner changed to a Category B, which enabled Governor Dorothy Wing to take her on a walk around Hampstead Heath part of her unofficial policy of reintroducing her charges into the outside world when she felt that they were ready. Like, what? You would never do that now with a Category B prisoner. But, like, that's that's not an official policy. That's her saying. Yeah, oh, no, come walk with me. But it's weird yeah. because, like, you wouldn't even do that in a Category C prison now. Like, yeah. So, like, I'm pretty sure no one really knew she was doing that until she No, I don't think that that can't be... that. Yeah, she must have been caught or something. That can't be an official Yeah. The excursion caused an uproar in the national press and earned Wing an official rebuke from the then Home Secretary, Robin Carr... Robert Carr, sorry. With help from Carnes and the outside contacts of another prisoner, Maxine Cross, Hindley planned a prison escape, but it was thwarted when the impressions of prison keys were intercepted by an off-duty policeman. Carnes was sentenced to six years in jail for her part of the plot. Like, why is that worth risking? You know what I mean? It's not. People get stupid, though, don't they? Like, why are you willing to risk your freedom? I just don't understand the logic. Like, 
like she's fallen in love with Myra Hindley, even though she murdered kids. Cool. We'll move on. She then gives her key impressions because she thinks that she can actually escape from a prison. Okay, cool. Yeah, and we no move- one's going to know what Myra looks like. Okay, cool. Way. We move on. We forget about that. Cool. Say that happens. You then, What do you think is going to happen then? You're just going to have a normal life of Myra Hindley forever. Yeah. <laughs> I-, <laughs> I don't understand. Get it. Um... Hindley was told that she should spend 25 years in prison before being considered for parole. The Lord Chief Justice agreed that the recommendation in 1982, but in January 1985, Home Secretary Leon Britton increased her tariff to 30 years. By that time, Hindley claimed to be a reformed Catholic. Downey's mother was at the centre stage of the campaign to ensure Hindley was never released from prison. And until her death in February 1999, she regularly gave television and newspaper interviews whenever Hindley's release was rumoured. Like, Hindley tried to manipulate Downey's family as well. Yeah. So she basically wrote to Downey's mother saying, I take full responsibility for my actions, blah, blah, blah. I'm not even going to try and go for parole. I'm just going to accept my fate like, and just live out my days in prison, all this. When in actual fact, she only did it to try and stop Downey's mother campaigning so hard so that when she still went for parole, she could say, well, no one's campaigning against it anymore. So mm. in February 1985, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher told Britain that his proposed minimum sentence of 30 years for Hindley and the 40 years for Brady were too short, saying, I do not think that either of these prisoners should ever be released from custody. Their crime was the most hideous and cruel of modern times. In 1987, Hindley admitted that the plea for parole she had submitted to the Home Secretary eight years earlier was, on whole, a pack of lies. At least she can fucking admit when she's lying. And to some reporters, her cooperation in the searches on Saddleworth Moor appeared a cynical gesture. Anyway, she's been a manipulative little cow. (laughs) Basically. Then Home Secretary David Waddington imposed a whole life tariff on Hindley in July 1990 after she confessed to having been more involved in the murders than she had admitted previously. Hindley was not informed of the decision until 1994 when a law lord's ruling obliged the prison service to inform all life sentence prisoners of the minimum period they must serve in prison before being considered for parole. Isn't that mad that she was given life sentences but she didn't know until 1994 how long that life sentence would be? No, do you know what's mad? There's a thing called IPP. Have you heard it? Mm, It sounds vaguely familiar. I think it was like in, well, not even that long ago because there are people still in prison with it now, but you got an IPP sentence. They introduced it to like kind of deter people from keeping, like they kept like offending and getting six months, six months, six months. So they introduced mm. this IPP, which is like in indeterminate prison, I don't know, something like that, indeterminate um, sentence. But it means yeah. that people get, say you get sentenced for robbery and you would normally mm. get a year, two years, three years, you don't get given a release date. So I, we've got people in prison still now that are in for like robbery and stuff. They've done like 15 years for one robbery. What? And they've How does that got, make any sense? just got to keep going for parole. But the problem, the problem is so backwards because, like, 
you can't get you get given a sentence plan when you go to prison and it's like you've got to do all these courses and whatever yeah but you don't get to do these courses unless you're like within a year of getting released but because you don't have a release date they don't let you do the courses so you just never get out it's like a the it's the most backwards thing ever that's ridiculous so you've got people that have literally been in prison for like 10 20 years for like robbery or yeah well, yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's most well, for things that they shouldn't be in for 20 years for. Things that you would now get three, four, five years for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I can believe that. People get given sentences all the time and they don't... And even then, you get given a parole date, but that doesn't mean you're getting out then. I just always thought that you had, like, a specific time, you know what I mean? Like It just, just, it just depends like on a minimum, the sentence. a minimum time, a minimum time to spend to like, serve. If you get a standard sentence, then you've got a release date, and no matter what you do, you're getting released on that date, which is mental, like... Yeah, so you could, like, fuck shit up in prison, and you'd still get released. Yeah. You could literally smash... You could smash every single cell up, and you would have to pay for the damage that you made, but you wouldn't get charged. Yeah. And then you're still going to get released on the set date. Like, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. Or there are people that just fucking spend their entire life in prison, never knowing when they're going to get out. It's horrible. Yeah. In 1996, the parole board recommended that Hinley be moved to an open prison. Now, I'm pretty sure you've told me what an open prison is before. So it's just... different. So for young offenders and women, it's different than it is for men's. Okay. So with men's, you have A being like the highest category. Then you have B, C and D. D is your open prison. Mm. But for women, I think you have A category, which is high. And then yeah. you have um, a closed conditions, which is like a B category, and then you just have open conditions. So, so what does open conditions entail? Open conditions, I'm not really sure 100% what it is for women. I think open conditions are just like, like you can be out all day and you can like go um, like around the compound all day and stuff like that. But I don't think you can mm. actually go out on day releases like you can in a male's open prison. I think that's different. Right, okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. an open prison in general means that you can like go out on day visits and like home leaves and stuff. But I'm not sure if that's different for women. It might be different for women. I only work. Yeah, it thing. might even be different. Like back in the nineties, like yeah. compared to what it's I'm like not, now. Yeah, I mean, like I've only worked in male prisons, so I don't really. I'm not really 100 percent sure, but yeah, yeah. So Hinley herself rejected the idea, and in early 1998 was moved to a medium security prison, High Point Prison. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's weird though, because like. I've seen the cell that she lived in and, like, I've been into the gym where she, like, fucking broke her leg. Mm, mm. It's weird to me. Yeah. The House of Lords ruling left open the possibility for later freedom. Between December 1997 and March 2000, Hinley made three separate appeals against her life tariff, claiming that she was a reformed woman and no longer a danger to society. Again, you are not... The right judge of character for that, Myra. (laughs) But each was rejected by the courts, not surprisingly. When in 2002, another life sentence prisoner challenged the Home Secretary's power to set the minimum terms, Hinley and hundreds of others whose tariffs had been increased by politicians looked likely to be released. That is just mad, like... You know, like, when there's, like, a slight technicality in the case or something like that and they're just released automatically? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, not even necessarily in this case, but you do see it happen. Hmm. And it's like, no, it's 
just because you find a little loophole, they still deserve to be in prison. Like, she still killed children. Like, Henley's release seemed imminent, and plans were made by supporters for her to be given a new identity. I don't understand how supporters can give that. Like, I thought it had to be an official thing, but okay. Home Secretary David Blunkett ordered Greater Manchester Police to find new charges against her to prevent her release from prison. Oh, that is an abuse of power in my book. Do you not think? Hmm. Be like, find anything you can. Like, well, that's no. why they couldn't. They couldn't, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like, nah, it's been 15 years. You can't try. Yeah. The, invest- the investigation was headed by Superintendent Tony Brett and initially looked at charging Hinley with the murders of Reed and Bennett, but... The advice given by government lawyers was that because the DPP's decision taken 15 years earlier, a new trial would probably be considered an abusive process. Like you said. More likely than anything, not just probably. Like, yeah, definitely. I agree, she should be convicted. Like, she should be tried and convicted, but you got to do things by the books, guys. Yeah. On the 25th of November 2002, the Law Lords agreed that judges, not politicians, should decide how long a criminal spends behind bars and strip the Home Secretary of the power to set the minimum sentences. On the 15th of November 2002, age 60, Hindley died from bronchial pneumonia at the West Suffolk Hospital. I've been there many a yeah. time. I don't even know where West Suffolk Hospital is. It's in various Edmonds. Oh, is it? Yeah. She was a 40-a-day smoker who, in 1999, had been diagnosed with angina and hospitalised after suffering a brain aneurysm. Camera crews stood rank and filed behind steel barriers outside, but none of Hindley's relatives were among the small congregation of 8 to 10 people who attend the short service at Cambridge Crematorium. Such was the strength of feeling more than 35 years after the murders, that a reported 20 local undertakers refused to handle her her cremation. Four months later, her ashes were scattered by her ex-partner, Patricia Carnes, less than 10 miles from Saddleworth Moor in Stallybridge Country Park. Fears were expressed that the news might result in visitors choosing to avoid the park, a a local beauty spot, or even that the park might be vandalised. So... Let's talk about everyone else in the story. Because they matter too. So David Smith became reviled by the people of Manchester for financially profiting from the murders. During the trial, Maureen, eight months pregnant, was attacked in the lift of the buildings in which she and David lived. Their home was vandalised, they regularly received hate mail, and Maureen wrote that she could not let her children out of her sight when they were small. After stabbing another man during a fight, oh, this is what we talked about earlier. Um, Mm. In an attack that he claimed was triggered by the abuse he had suffered since the trial, Smith was sentenced to three years in prison in 1969. That same year, his children were taken into the care of the local authority. Maureen moved from Underwood Court to a single-bedroom property and found work in a department store. Subjected to whispering campaigns and petitions to remove her from the estate where she lived, she received no support from her family. Her mother had supported Myra during the trial, On his release from prison, Smith moved in with a 15-year-old girl who became his second wife and won custody of his three sons. Maureen managed to repair the relationship with her mother and moved into a council property in Gorton. She divorced Smith in 1973 and married a lorry driver, Bill Scott, with whom she had a daughter. I wonder 
why he got custody. Because didn't she she start so she's moved into this one bed flat. She's like, I don't know if she's an alcoholic, but I think she might be being a prostitute. Like she kind of really? just the plot. Because it's not often like even And he's got a criminal if you record. don't take into account. Like you'd be surprised what? if he got it because he's got a criminal record. That's what I mean though, like it the children often go to the mother anyway, but then have him having a criminal record on top of that. And it's not even a criminal record of like petty theft, it's a criminal record of violence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. Maureen and her immediate family made regular visits to see Hindley, who reportedly adored her niece. In 1980, Maureen suffered a brain hemorrhage. Hindley was allowed to visit her in hospital, but arrived an hour after her death. Sheila and Patrick Kilbride, who were by then divorced, attended Maureen's funeral, thinking that Hindley might be there. Patrick mistook Bill Scott's daughter from a previous relationship for Hindley and tried to attack her. Shortly before her death, at the age of 70, Sheila said, quote, if Hindley ever comes out of jail, I'll kill her. It was a threat repeated by her son Danny and Anne West. In 1972, Smith was acquitted of the murder of his father, who had been suffering from terminal cancer. He pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to two days' detention. Didn't he? He, um, what's the phrase? He, like, euthanised him. Like, Yeah, like assisted suicide. Yeah, assisted suicide, that's it. So Smith's dad asked him to help him to die. It wasn't like... Yeah, yeah. He didn't just, like, cold-blooded murder. No. But two um, days detention, is that just two days in prison? Yeah. Oh, okay. He remarried and moved to Lincolnshire with his three sons and was exonerated of any participation in the Moors murders by Hinley's confession in 1987. In 2011, he co-authored the book Witness with biographer Carol Ann Lee. He died in Ireland in 2012. In 1977, the BBC television debate discussed arguments for and against Myra Hindley's release, with Lord Longford, a Roman Catholic convert on the side who argued that Hindley should be released, and Downey's mother arguing against Hindley being released and threatening to kill her were the release to occur. That's a big statement on television. I, don't know if I, said it. I mean, I don't. I would say it. I guess because what you're going to do, I'm just making a threat. You don't I mean, to... but then if she did get released and she turned up dead, your prime, your prime suspect. Well, I wouldn't even care about semi to prison. I don't care. It was worth it. <laughs> and people would probably respect her in prison because she'd be like, "Yeah, I killed Myra Hindley." Yeah, I killed my child's killer. Like. Yeah. Reed's mother was admitted to Springfield Mental Hospital in Manchester. She was present under heavy sedation at the funeral of her daughter on the 7th of August 1987. Five years after their son was murdered, Sheila and Patrick Kilbride divorced. Downey's mother died in 1999 from cancer of the liver. Since her daughter's death, she has campaigned to ensure that Hinley remains in prison, and doctors said that the streets had contributed to the severity of her illness. Bennett's mother continued to visit Saddleworth Moor, where it is believed that Bennett is buried. She died in August 2012, never knowing where her son was buried. Manchester City Council decided in 1987 to demolish the house in which Brady and Hindley had lived on Wardlebrook Avenue, and where Downey and Evans was, were murdered. The photographs and tape recording of the torture of Downey exhibited in court and the nonchalant response of Brady and Hindley helped to ensure the lasting notoriety. Brady, who said that he did not want to be released, was rarely mentioned in the news. But Hindley's insistent desire to be released made her figure of public hate, especially as she failed to confess to the involvement of Reed and Bennett's murders for over 20 years. 
Himley's role in the crimes was also challenged gender norms. Her betrayal of maternal stereotypes fed public perception of her inherent evil and made her the poster girl for moral panics about serial murder and paedophilia in subsequent decades. Her often reprinted photograph, taken shortly after she was arrested, is described by some commentators as similar to the mythical Medusa and, according to author Helen Birch, has become synonymous with the idea of feminine evil. Given Hindley's status as co-defendant in the first serial murder trial held since the abolition of death penalty, retribution was a common theme among those who sought to keep her locked away. Even Hindley's mother insisted that she should be able to die in prison, partly for fear for her daughter's safety. Some commentators expressed the view of the two, Hindley was the more evil one. Which I agree to some extent. Mm. She was the one that tried to hide hide it and manipulate it to make her look like the victim. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think also, like, because she was a woman and, like, people weren't used to it, it kind of made her seem more evil. Yeah, I think the the level of responsibility is equal for both of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you're talking about evilness, like... Brady never tried to hide it. Myra did. And that's sort of more scary. You know what I mean? Lord Longford, a Catholic convert, campaigned to secure the release of celebrated criminals, and Hindley in particular, which earned him the constant derision from the public and the press. He described Hindley as a delightful person and said you could loathe what people did, but should not loathe what they were because human personality was sacred even though human behaviour is often appalling. Excuse me. <laughs> if, she's a delightful, if she was a delightful person, how the fuck is she able to kill five children? Yeah. People make uh, mistakes. I'm over him. He does not deserve a voice <laughs> um, in this Lord situation. Lord you're cancelled. Yeah. Uh, tabloid newspapers branded him a loony and a do-gooder, which I agree with, for supporting hmm. Henley whom they described as evil. She became the long-running source of material for the press, which printed embellished tales of her cushy life at a five-star Cook and Wood prison and her liaison with prison staff and other inmates. Is any, prison, is any prison cushy? That's what I was just about to say. I don't think you can call any prison five-star. Trust me. Are they not all derelict to some extent? Because they can know. never... The one that I work in school. is all right, but it's still a prison. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but also it probably still needs refurbishment to some extent. If like, you don't have a key for your own door and you can't open and close it whenever you want, you're not in a five-star hotel, are you? Exactly. <laughs> like, you have not got room service. You, you have, have a not single bed with bedding yeah. and bath sheets every single day. You like, have a horrible single bed with, like, a fucking concrete mattress. Do they have to share cells in your prison as well? Some of them. It depends on what unit. Yeah, some of them doubles. But like, if you've not if you've not got access to a claw foot bathtub with bubble bath and everything, that is if not best out. What's the worst? <laughs> if you have to share a cell with someone and there's no screen cover and you have to watch each other's shit, you're oh not my in the first That is my worst nightmare. Honestly, I would li- not actually go into prison because I know I'm like I'll never do anything to go to prison but having to shit in front of someone else i would just never poo again i'd just never do a poo again 
Anyway, Joe. so this is the end of the podcast. Oh, what a journey we've been After on. Two hours and ten minutes of recording. So that's like four hours of Myra. Oh no, I guess three hours of Myra and Ian Brady. Yeah, well, it won't be over two hours when I edit it. It's because we had to take breaks and stuff, wasn't it? Um. So next week, we're doing Fred and Rose West. Definitely also another yeah. two-parter. Big one. We're not yep. giving ourselves easy cases here, are we? It's back oh, to back. No, but they're interesting, aren't they? Yeah, um, they are interesting. And then after that, we're doing our Halloween theme. How many weeks have we got for Halloween? I put four in because there's five weeks in October. So we've got the first week is oh, the, the second first, part. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay, so we've got four episode spaces for our Halloween themes. I am a Halloween gal. Like, I'm obsessed. Um, my housemate won't let me decorate just yet, my house. Yeah, it is Although a bit early. Although, I, yeah, but I, 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 I do like, know that... Like, awesome. I do know that Beetlejuice is on Netflix and I've never seen that film before, so I'm definitely going to watch <gasps> that this Halloween. Oh my god, you need to watch it if you are in isolation now. <laughs> yeah, I might have to isolate now. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Fucking COVID. Okay. So I hope you enjoyed. Um, follow us on social media so you can do our little Halloween polls. Yeah. Um, we only have Instagram. Yeah, we only have Instagram. Um, it's at everything with the girls. If we got anything wrong or we need to be corrected on a specific thing, just let us know. We're open to that. But don't be a dick. Like, <laughs> we're open to um, constructive criticism. Only and constructive criticism. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to go and isolate. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.